Amen. Well, you know, we've been in this series called Stories. And uh, one of the, the things we want to do with this is we, we want to introduce you to stories throughout Scripture because we know God wants us to learn from, from the stories that he tells us in Scripture, learn about him, learn about the people in the stories, how they responded to God, how they learned, and how we can learn through those. But we also want to introduce you to people in our body. And so this morning I'm excited to introduce to you, many of you know her, but she's a great woman. We're so excited to share some of her story and, and spend some time talking with her. Belinda Shelton, why don't you come up? Talk with us for a minute. Yeah, give her a big hand. Come on up here if you would. That's for you. Thanks. Yeah, you bet. I just asked Belinda, you know, we, we do these things called what's next groups. And the point of those groups is to help people know who we are as a church and also to get to know each other. And she was in the first one or the second one. And I just remember, so we started talking, you know, I kind of lay out the, the hope of the group, which is, hey, we want to just kind of share authentically who we are and what God's doing in us. And, and I'll, I'll never forget, after kind of sharing a little bit myself, Belinda's like, I'll go next. And she begins to share some of her story and some of her heartache and some of what God has done and some of his healing. And uh, I just, so I just said, Belinda, would you just come and share a little bit about what God has done? And so I just, you know, the question that I would ask is, is basically... Tell us about some of the difficult things that you've had to walk through, some of the things that you've had to, to, to deal with, put up with, that God is obviously using in your life. But what are some of those things that, that have been difficult things that you've had to endure over the last several years? Actually, it's been most of my life. Um, so, uh, a lot of things that have been difficulties in my life have been caused by other people. <laughs> But a lot of them I've, uh, have been some of my own decisions that I've made sure. that have caused dis difficulties. But I grew up in a very volatile home where um, my dad was an alcoholic, but thankfully he quit drinking when I was 20, so I was very thankful for that. But my mom um, tended to have an evil spirit inside of her, and she was emotionally and physically abusive to my mm -hmm. brother and I, and mostly mm -hmm. to me. Um, and... Um, so it was very difficult in life to um, know that I was cared for and to know that somebody loved me and somebody was there for me at all times. Um, so that was difficult when, for one thing. And, sure. and uh, the other was a decision of my own was I decided to date this boy that uh, was in our youth group. and. <laughs> And even though some of my friends told me that was the wrong person to date, I still dated him. And um, I just saw him as a way of um, getting away from my household that I was in. And then I ended up marrying him. And that ended up really bad, uh, being a bad decision, even though my friends and my um, church both told me not to marry him. I still did. We went outside the church and got married. And he ended up um, having his first affair six months into our marriage, but mm -hmm. he lied about it for seven years, even though I knew in my heart it had happened. He was also an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. and, um, but I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell my church about it. I didn't tell my best friend about it. Um, nobody knew about it until in our 17 years, year of marriage, he filed for divorce. And we had to go to court, and everything came out at that time. And so th 
those were just, mm. you know, that was a bad decision, although, you know, he caused a lot of the difficulties too, but sure. it was a bad decision on my part. And so. Well, and, and the thing that we're all hearing is we all face very difficult yes. situations, and I'm, I'm sure those specific things resonate with a lot of people, but yes. the thing I also want them to hear is what has God done in spite of that difficulty <laughs> in you? Because when you sell those things, I don't, I don't experience you around those difficulties. No. I experience you around the grace of Jesus and his love. And so tell us about what he's done and taught you through those things. Well, it, it was, it's been really amazing. My best friend Shannon is here today to stand beside me. But, yeah. uh, She's been with me since I was 14, and she and her mom led me to Christ wow. when I was 15 and in the front seat of their green station wagon. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So, um, and they modeled to me what a Christian family was really all about. Her family took me in, and I've, her parents have been my parents since, mm. um, since I was 14, and they have just surrounded me with love, and her husband, Phil, continues to surround me with love. They've just taken me in. And they've shown me so much about um, what it is to be confident in God mm. and to know that I'm a child of a king yeah. and I'm a princess yeah. and I don't deserve to be treated the way that I was treated. Yeah. And so it really gave me a confidence to stand up to my mom and tell her, you know, I didn't deserve to be treated that way. Right. And then um, when I was 37, that was when my husband had filed for divorce. Uh, it was right, actually right before he had filed for divorce. I was at fellowship, and there was um, a sermon series that was going on. And before the sermon one morning, Robert Lewis said that there was going to be an altar call that day. And fellowship doesn't do many altar calls. Mm -hmm. And I just started shaking from head to toe. Mm -hmm. I felt the Holy Spirit coming over me. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I knew I was walking to that altar. And I was surrendering my life to him. Mm -hmm. I think I, you know... I accepted Christ when I was 15, but at 37, the Holy Spirit just took mm. me and I surrendered my life to him. And ever since then, I've walked knowing that he is all I need. I don't need anything else. Yeah. And so that's where I've been since then. I love it. I love <laughs> it. I love this lady so much. And many of you who know her love her as well because we know her that way. She's a surrendered woman to Jesus. She loves the Lord. She loves prayer. Mm -hmm. And she loves her family. And this is just... We, wanted, we didn't want to take a ton of time, but we no. wanted just to, to get to know you a little bit better. Yeah. And I knew when we did, you would raise up the flag of who Jesus is, oh, over his grace over your life. Mm -hmm. And we love you, and we're so thankful for not only what he's done, but what he's continuing to do. He's redeeming yes. all that's been stolen all from you, time. isn't he? All the time. Praise the Lord. So. Give her a hand this morning, would you? Love you. Love you. Well, I, I love this lady. She is, she's an inspiration to me. Uh, she's um, a courageous lady, and uh, I just love her very much, the way she encourages other people. And I just started thinking not only about her, but about the fact that there are a lot uh, of women in my life and in our church that are amazing women of God. Did you know that? I'm, I'm sitting here, and I could just point them out to you and have them all stand. They're amazing women of God, and I'm so thankful for the strong and brave and courageous women in our church and in my life who lead, who love the Lord. They're not afraid to sacrifice and speak of his goodness, even in front of our church. So, Belinda, we love you. Thank you for being willing to do that. Appreciate that. Well, this morning I want to tell you a story of, of another woman who is an incredible lady. Uh, there's a lot of stories in the Bible of incredible leaders who do incredible things and give amazing sacrifice 
and show us a lot about who Jesus is, and they happen to be women. And this morning, I want to bring your attention uh, to one, okay? Now, she's connected to Israel's great king, King David, but unlike most of the stories that involve King David, he's not the main character. He's the supporting character in this story, which is kind of cool. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to look at uh, the story of Abigail. How many of you are familiar with Abigail's story? Oh, good, several of you. Well, it's such a great story. We wanted to kind of make sure that we all knew about it and we could learn from it as much as we possibly could. So this story is about a lot of things, but it's, it's about two prideful men and one woman willing to be a peacemaker. Now, I'll just ask this question before we get started. Do you think uh, our world could use some more peacemakers? I mean, it's just, it's comical, and it? it's like, Man, if we needed anything right now, we need some peacemakers willing to sacrifice, willing to go the extra mile and step between uh, conflict and bring peace. And so that's what we see Abigail do. Uh, The story this morning is going to come from 1 Samuel 25. That'll be our text. But it's a long story. So what we're going to do is I'm going to kind of just recap parts of the story. And then we're going to jump into the story and read portions of the scripture uh, to bring you along. I, I've, on your card, I've, I've broken down our story into five sections. Okay, the sections are the setting, the setup of the story. Uh, the second section involves a, one of the servants of Abigail. And then the third section speaks of her sacrifice. The fourth section, David's salvation. And the last, Abigail's husband, his name is Nabal, his sentencing. Okay, so we're going to get into this. First thing I want you to know about the story is a little of the background. Now, King David, we know he's an amazing man, amazing king, but he hadn't gotten to all the amazing stuff yet. <laughs> In fact, he's been anointed king, uh, but he's not the reigning king. The reigning king is King Saul, and King Saul is not happy about King David or the anointed King David. He's not happy about David at all. He's tried to kill him with his spear. He's chased him down. He's run him into places that, that are that have caused David to be in a fugitive, in hiding, running all over the place. He is not happy with David. He wants him dead. Uh, David, during this time, as he's running from King Saul, I think it's so interesting, he, uh, he's bound together this group of men. And when I think about these guys, in Scripture, a lot of people refer to them as David's mighty men, which, is that not an awesome name? Would you not like, want to be in that club, guys, right? David's, I'm, yeah, I'm part of David's mighty men. You might have heard of us, you know. It just reminds me of like uh, Robin Hood, you know, and, and David's men live out in the forest just like Rob. It's a similar kind of thing. Maybe that story came from there. I don't know. But one thing that's interesting is in 1 Samuel 22, the Bible tells us that these mighty men that were connected to David were, it says that they were um, in distress, in debt, and disconnected. It literally lays out those three things as identifiers of who these men were. They're in distress, they're in debt, and they're disconnected from the rest of the world. And so David says, come on with me, guys. I'm, I'm kind of some of that too. So join me. And he ends up gathering 600 mighty men. It's a very interesting story. And so that's where we are. David's in, on the run from Saul. He's gathered this group of ne'er-do-wells, if you will, a motley crew of guys in distress and debt and disconnected. And, but we see he's a good leader. And the reason we see that is because these men begin to take on some of his qualities. They're, they're decent guys. They're not stealing from people. They're, they're honoring God in ways. And so that's, that's good. We see even some of David's leadership come out in that way. Now, David and his men are camped out in this area called Carmel. And while they're there, they've noticed some shepherds and some sheep nearby that are grazing. And David's men have taken it upon themselves to kind of watch over the sheep and the shepherds. So if the sheep need anything, or the shepherds, I should say, need anything for their job of shepherding, the guys would give it to them. 
And they even protected them maybe from wild animals or thieves or, or whatever the case, bandits, whatever the case may be. They were, they were very kind to the shepherds. One day, we see that uh, the shepherds are going to go back home. They're going to take the sheep in season. You know, these things happen in season. They graze them for so long. And in, in season, they take them home to be sheared. Their, their fur has grown out or whatever you call that stuff. And uh, we see that the guy who owns the sheep and, and is over the shepherds is a very wealthy man. His name is Nabal. The text tells us he owns 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. But it also tells us he's not a very good person. Some of your translations say that he's surly. He's not, he's not a good man. He's a wicked man, an evil man. Uh, but it also tells us about his wife, Abigail, that she is discerning and beautiful. And I love that, right, in that order. She's discerning and beautiful. And I love that because I happen to have a discerning and beautiful wife myself. However, I hope I'm a better husband than Nabal. Uh, we hear that, uh, so David hears that they're shearing the sheep. He says, guys, you know, we've helped this guy a lot. Let's, I think maybe we could get some pay for this. And so he, said, he sends 10 men from his group of, of mighty men. Hey, guys, go down there, and I want you to see if you can get some food and some things that we might need, okay? The guy owes it to us. And scripturally, we see even in Deuteronomy that that is the case. When you care for someone's flock like that or you work for them, they rightfully owe you some sort of uh, payment, okay? And so this is what David tells the group. And if you look with me, 1 Samuel 25, verse 6, he tells the group of, of 10 guys, he says, Guys, go down and greet him like this. Peace to you. Peace be to your home. Peace be to all that you have. So David here is saying, peace, 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 right? All, all good. Verse 7 says, I hear that you have shearers, and now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Car Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your, in your eyes, for we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. So David's thinking, hey, we've done the work, and we really could use some of this food. I've got 600 mouths to feed. So if you guys go down and ask this guy, it's rightfully ours anyway, but go ahead and ask him and, and, and see what he says. Well, you need to know Nabal is not impressed with David. He doesn't like David very much. In fact, he says when they ask him, Nabal says, who is this David? <laughs> and who is this son of Jesse? Well, you need to know this about Nabal. He's a relative of David. The text tells us that Nabal is from the same people who have sort of founded the town of Bethlehem, which is where David's from. And so this is a distant relative. He knows who David is. He knows David has been anointed king. He knows Saul's trying to kill David. He knows all these things, and yet he denies the fact that he knows him. And he's, he's insulting him. Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? In other words, he's not a part of my family, though he was. He rejects David's leadership, and instead of seeing him sort of as the anointed king, he calls him a rebellious slave. He says this right here. He says, there are many servants breaking away from their masters these days. He's speaking to the anointed king of Israel, and he calls him a rebellious slave. This is an insult, okay? And have you ever noticed when people insult you, it hurts, man. But when someone from your family insults you, it hurts even more, doesn't it? I mean, it's a wound that goes deeper than, than if someone you don't know that well insults you. This is David, it, Nabal knows David as part of the family somewhere. And I think David was thinking, hey, you know what? Uh, in fact, he even says, uh, 
Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. David's making a connect, family connection. And the guy's like, I don't know you. I don't know you, rebellious slave. And so we can see how uh, insulted David must be. Nabal says, you think I'm going to just give you my, my meat and my wine and, and I need to feed my own shears. Why would I give it to you, right? Well, he, he sins against David at this point. When he chooses to not pay David and his men what they, they have done for him, he does not reward them for the work that they've done, he sins against David. David's men now come back to David with nothing. And they walk up and, and they tell David what he said. Now, you can just imagine, these are mighty men, right? They're all strong. They're all warriors. They're, they're a fighting crew. They're an army. And let's look at what David's response is to Nabal's insult. 1 Samuel 25, 13, he says, And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. Oh, snap. Right? That's not in the text, by the way, the oh, snap part. He says, Every man of them strapped, uh, strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. 400 men in King David walking out of the woods, swords gleaning in the sunlight, with bloodlust. Nabal is a dead man. Have you ever been so angry that, that you just grit your teeth and you're somehow you're talking through gritted teeth? You know what I'm talking about? I don't get there a lot, but there was a season in my life where I was wounded very deeply. Of course, the wound was deep because it was somebody very close and a dear friend. And I found myself at times driving my car down country roads and, and I said some things that would make a sailor blush against this person. I would do it different times, and the Holy Spirit would go, what are you doing? And i go, oh, gosh, what am I doing? And I would snap out of it. But I was, I was angry. I was hurt. I was wounded. Have you ever been there? It's exactly the place we see David in this moment. And imagine him with gritted teeth, holding onto his sword and ready to kill as he comes out of the woods in verse 21. Now David had said, surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow, he doesn't even call him by his name, that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God, do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Is David a little upset here? David is about to go crazy on some people, and there's 400 men at his beck and call to do whatever he says. He's about to wipe out a village. About to wipe out a village. Here's the second section where the servant enters. Uh, one of Nabal's servants, one of Abigail's servants, sees that, that Nabal has sent these men away with nothing. So he runs to Abigail and he says, you need to know what has happened. You need to know what has happened and there's danger coming our way. Look what he says here, 1 Samuel 25, 14. He says, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master. And he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. Uh, they were a wall to us, both by night and by day. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore, know this, and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Now, it wasn't common 
for a, for a servant to speak to his master's wife about the master as a worthless man, right? That's, it just stands out to me like, whoa, he's really, that's because he's about to die. And he says, this doesn't need to happen. This is serious. And, and he's a worthless man. And he's not listening. You've got to do something. So now Abigail is faced with a decision. You know, we have this fight or flight mode in our, in our brains, right? When something happens, oh gosh, what am I going to do? Am I going to curl up in a fetal position in the closet and whatever happens, happens? I'm going to take off. Or am I going to stand up and am I going to fight? Am I, well, she, she sort of does a third option. Instead of flighting or fighting, she chooses to fall. And it's very, very interesting. Look with me. 1 Samuel 25, verse 18. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five says of parched grain, which is about 60 pounds, and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Before, uh, behold, I come after you. They're probably like, uh, you better. I mean, you're sending us into the gauntlet, right? But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came under the cover of mountains, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now go down to verse 23. It says, when Abigail saw David, she hurried. By the way, this is our main text. I really want us to pay attention to this main text. She sees David. says she hurried and she got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow. Nabal, uh, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. His name literally meant fool or having folly. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord, whom you sent, now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Verse 28, please forgive the trespass of your servant. Verse 28, please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord, a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. Isn't that beautiful? And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs or conscience of having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation for himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Now there's a lot of information there. And so I would encourage you to, to leave here today Take uh, this scripture, this main text especially, and really dig out all the meaning that it has because there's a lot. Listen, if you're a leader, if you're, if you're a husband or a wife, a mom or a dad, or you work with people, pretty much all of us, right? You can learn some amazing lessons from this story. And I want to break them down very quickly for us, what we see Abigail do in this moment. The first thing she does is she disarms David. She sends literally a peace offering. She sends the things he was kind of hoping for anyway. She sends them on donkeys, 
towards David, hoping, hoping to kind of soften him up, to help him snap out of this, this moment that he was in ready to kill. Hopefully he'll, you know, they say the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. I don't, I'm just saying, maybe this is foreshadowing, I don't know. But she sends this food, she sends these gifts, hoping that David gets snapped out of this bloodlust that he has. She honors David. As soon as she sees David, she hurries off of her donkey, down to her face, without saying a word. Now, this is a sign of complete submission. This is a sign, without saying anything, I am your servant, and I am acknowledging that you are king. You see that? When Nabal said, who's David? Abigail says, I know exactly who you are, and I bow before you as king. And then when they connect, it says that she falls at his feet, Right? She falls at his feet. She takes the posture of a servant. I want us to see that. She humbles herself in such a way that she's going, I'm your servant. Now, was she his servant? No. She wasn't David's servant, but she took the posture. She took the position. She humbled herself as a servant to come before David. And there's a really important reason for that, right? She's showing, I'm on your side. I'm on your side. And then she does this next thing. She takes the blame. Do you see that? She takes the blame for this idiot husband of hers, Nabal. She takes the blame. Listen, she saw a coming massacre. She saw a coming massacre. The servant saw a coming massacre. And even though he knew that his boss, Nabal, was an idiot and calls him a worthless man, even Abigail calls him a worthless man, they don't want him to die. There's a massacre coming to all of us, and she takes the blame on herself, humbling herself before David. Next, we see that she warns David of what he's about to do. You're about to commit mass murder. Do you, do you understand? This? That's sin. You shouldn't do this. And when you do it, you're going to be saying, I'm going to save myself. And that's a very important part of this text that just kept speaking to me over and over again. It's spoken three times in this overall text. See, what's happening is David is saying, you don't insult me. I'm a bad man, and you don't insult me, and and I'm going to have to stand up for myself, take matters in my own hands, and I'll save myself. But that's not God's plan for any of us. And David should have known better. She reminds him. She says, David, she says, this is not the way. This is not the way. And then she even... She even asked that David would forgive Nabal. And that he would forgive her now that she's taken the blame. Would you forgive your servant? It's the right thing to do, she says. And I, this next part just blows my mind. Let's, can we learn from this? <laughs> the first thing that she does is she reminds him, she says, after asking for forgiveness, she says, you're the king. You're the anointed king. And there's a reason God has anointed you. It's because basically Saul has stopped honoring God and you're honoring God. And that's the reason he's giving you the kingdom. This is not something that a king would do. You need to honor God. Now, why do you need to honor God? David, you ought to know this of all people because people who honor God, he will protect and he will provide. Haven't you noticed that, David, that he's fought your battles? He's gone before you. He's given you everything you need. This evil can't be found in somebody who's representing God. And then she does something so incredible. She, she reminds him of his, of his current, present position. 
She says, basically, I know Saul's after you. There are people trying to kill you right now. She's speaking about Saul. God has protected you. He has saved you from his hand time and time again. And then she says, takes him to his past. Brilliant. She says, hasn't God protected you in these battles? In fact, she says, hasn't there been somebody in your past that was bigger than Saul? I just think this is so good, you know. It's kind of like a wife, you know, needing the husband to take out the trash, you know. She's like, well, I, I need you to take out the trash, but I, you think you could do it with one arm? And you're like, I know what you're doing here, right? You're just trying to get me to take out the trash. I can totally do it with one arm, you know. <laughs> it's, that, it's that sort of a moment. It's like she's bringing him back to the high school football days, you know. It's like, don't you remember what you've done? Don't you remember that God has protected and provided for your life? In fact, don't you remember the greatest champion that we've ever heard of, Goliath? She's reminded, David, do you think it was a little stone and a little sling <laughs> that killed Goliath? No, it was God fighting your battles for you and with you. Don't forget who God has been, she says in verse 29. And she says, the lives of your enemies shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. She's reminding him of Goliath. Don't forget who God has been to you, what God has done. And then she reminds him of his future. She talked about his present. She talked about his past. And now she's talking about his future. She's saying, David, you don't want this murder. And you trying to save yourself and take matters into your own hands, you don't want this as a part of your story. You don't want this to be something that you're going to remember. You're going you're to regret this if you do this. Don't let this be part of your story. Don't let this be in your memory of you trying to save yourself. And she speaks all of it with faith. This is what I'm talking about. At the very end of her kind of uh, speech, and by the way, it's the longest speech of a woman in the entire Old Testament. She says, when God blesses you, when God does all the things he said he's going to do, and when you are anointed king. See, this is all in faith. When God does all that he's promised, because that's what he does. Don't forget your servant. It's just this beautiful, beautiful, intentional moment that she has laid out her life before David. And, and there's no question, this was a risky move. I mean, David was in such a bloodlust that he could have killed those donkeys and killed those servants and killed her on his way to take care of business, right? He was angry. But she took the risk. She was a brave, brave woman. She took a risk. And she goes out. In fact, he tells her in verse 34, it's a good thing you hurried out here, he says, to meet me because I was on my way to hurt you. Look at it. David says, it's a good thing you came out here when you did because I was literally on my way to hurt you and all of your whole family, your whole house. But God uses Abigail. He uses her, her, her humility, her sacrifice to fall before the Lord, and what does God do? He uses it to bring conviction on David's heart. And David sees it as salvation. He says, I'm so thankful that you have done this, that you've been willing to do this, so I don't take matters into my own hands and try and get uh, revenge and save myself. And we see that David sort of snaps out of it. Look here, 1 Samuel 25, verse 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Have you ever had somebody that stopped you from doing something really, really dumb? Have you? 
Guys, maybe you're about to get in a fight and somebody's like, hey, no, 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 come on, think about this. Ladies, you're about to make a purchase or do something that you shouldn't, be in a relationship. <laughs> Whatever. And a friend is like, you might want to think about, I don't know, think about that. You ever had somebody save you from a big mistake? Well, that's exactly what David's doing in this moment. He's being saved from an incredible mistake. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. David goes from this prideful warrior ready to kill to somebody who's taking advice from a woman, which is a big deal in that day. In fact, he says this in verse 35, then David received from her hand, he took her gifts and what she had brought him, and he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. This is such a beautiful moment. The risk has paid off. She's been a peacemaker. David, all of a sudden, he suddenly snaps out of warrior. I'm going to take care of business. They're going to see I'm worthy, I'm good enough, I'm man enough to deal with this. To a broken, humble, beautiful position. He realizes just like this, two wrongs don't make a right. This is not the way to go. It's like David saying to himself, this isn't my story. God, I don't have to stand up for myself because this is your story. And you're the God of the universe and this is... That's not my role, to have revenge. David literally understands sometimes you have to lose a battle to win a war. It's exactly what he does. Can you imagine? You think David was angry? You think some of these crazy, discontented, indebted guys, they were happy about not going through with the mission? They're ready to go. And David's like, no, guys, mm -mm. not today. David humbles himself. He swallows his pride. He listens. He surrenders to Abigail's wisdom. And in doing so, God gives him a grace to protect him from this sin of mass murder and thinking he could save himself. This is what God says about revenge. Deuteronomy 32, 35 says, vengeance is mine. You've heard that, right? It's in the New Testament as well, quoting this verse. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. And that's exactly what we see. You see, Abigail live, leaves this uh, interaction with David. She goes back to her home. Can you imagine? Whew. I mean, she's just saved everyone. She's probably weeping. She's probably thanking God. She's who knows what. She's on her way back home, and she gets home, and she hears some music. She sees a party, and she comes in, and she finds Nabal throwing this big party, and the, the writer of the text says, acting like a king. Now, I think it's interesting that the writer helps us juxtapose. He's not a king, but he's acting like one. When the real king is out in a field, probably in tears himself, hum humiliated, yet humbled before God and his men, that God has saved his life. God has saved his future. So he's drunk. Nabal is drunk. And Abigail can't explain anything. But the next morning she goes in to tell 
Nabal what has happened. 1 Samuel 25, 37. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things. Listen. And his heart died within him. He became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. This is the fifth part of our story. It's a sentencing of Nabal. God is a just God. And though we have to say, Lord, this is your story, it's not my story, we have to trust that he's a just God. God, you're going to take care of whatever you need to take care of. But we need to understand and we need to learn sometimes God uses losses in our lives to bring about winning of a war. David didn't understand this in the moment. He just had to humble himself under the conviction of the Spirit of God and, and Abigail's wisdom. But literally, God brings judgment upon Nabal that next day. He's literally scared to death. He probably had a stroke. He probably went into a catatonic state for the next 10 days, and ultimately God struck him dead. In doing so, we see later in the text, obviously David's thankful for that judgment, but we see that Nabal has lost, (laughs) he's lost everything. He's lost his land, he's lost his wife, he's lost his wealth, and he's lost ultimately his very life because he was prideful, he was arrogant. Like this, is, this is what the, the text says in, in Proverbs 16, 18. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. When we live in this way, we don't honor God and we think we're in control of everything, we will fall. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And in verse 10, it reminds me of Abigail's contrition before David. It says, humble yourselves before the Lord and, and he will exalt you. She goes from the wife of, of a bad man. She was probably abused. She was probably taken advantage of based on his character. And now she's about to become the wife of King David. When David sends his men to ask her to be his wife, he's probably doing so in more of a kinsman redeemer sort of a way, honestly. But he's going to care for her. He's going to love her. But when, when he, they come and ask her, it's very interesting um, what she says. In verse 41, she says, it says, And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground. She's done, she's done this before. She bows with her face to the ground and says, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Do you see her posture? It wasn't just that her posture was that before David. This is her posture in life. She has this ongoing characteristic of humility and service. And she, you know, the person who's married to the king typically doesn't have to wash the feet of his servants, right? She's choosing this posture of service, humbled before the men of David. Well, this is a story. It's a story of pride, right? Nabal was prideful. David was prideful. It's a story of humility. We see Abigail be the peacemaker and humble herself before David. Then we see David's pride turn into humility, which is the hope for any of us, right? That instead of just being like Nabal and going on and doing our own thing, 
You only live once, I might as well do whatever I want to do. I'm the king of my own world. No. David learns. He says, I don't want to be like Saul. That's what happened to Saul. Saul thought, I'm king, so I'll do whatever I want. And God removed him as king and judged him. And now David has an opportunity to go from prideful to humble. It's an incredible moment. David is described in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. And if you study the life of David, you see in so many amazing ways, really what an amazing person he was. He, he was incredible. He was incredible. But we see him slip up, and this is one of the ones we see. We see him begin to sin, begin to forget that God is the one that fights his battles and that God will avenge. And so David forgets, and he wants revenge. And he wants to take matters into his own hands. He wants to be the man. He wants to stand up. He wants to be in control. He forgets that God has already said, you are the man. I've already anointed you king. You don't have to bow up in that way. I've got you. I'm providing for you. Just serve me. Just honor me. God fights your battles. Sometimes we feel entitled. Listen, David was right. According to Scripture, David was owed payment for what he and his men had done. Sometimes you're going to be right. Sometimes you're going to have done the right thing and somebody dishonor you, insult you, and hurt you. It's happened to me. It happens to you. It happens in our lives. The question is, how do you respond? You say, oh, okay. Really? Then let's see. I'll see. Well, I'm going to take revenge. We'll see who's, you know. No. Instead, we say, God, you fight my battles. You, you are the God who avenges. I don't have to. And I can even lose the war, lose this battle, lose this instance, lose this lesson, this moment, so that I can watch you win the war in my life. That's what David did. Nabal is another character. We see he's prideful, he's greedy, he's worthless. <laughs> Not, I mean, his wife said he was worthless, his, his worker said he was worthless. He was definitely clueless. And we see God bring judgment on him almost immediately. We see another person in the story. We see the servant. I think this is interesting because the servant probably shouldn't have stepped up, but he did because he didn't want to die. It just reminds me that in community, sometimes we have to say hard things to each other. If we have the kind of church that loves one another, we'll be the kind of church and small groups that can say hard things to each other. I had to say to a friend one time, man, I think you're drinking way too much. I think you're hurting your life. He kind of did like that and said, Nobody's ever said that to me. I said, well, I love you, and I don't, want to, I don't want to see you ruin your life. He didn't take my advice. He ended up ruining his life. Sometimes we have to say hard things. This is what Zechariah says in 8.16. He says, these are the things that you shall do. He says, speak the truth to one another. He says, render in your gates, in your community, judgments that are true and make for peace. See, we don't just say something to hurt somebody. We say it to make them better, to save a life, to save a community, to save your life, physically, spiritually, whatever the case may be. Sometimes we say hard things so that we can help someone else, so that we can help our own community to make for peace. And then lastly, I'm going to close. I'm going to look at Abigail just for a second here. Does she remind you of anybody? When you look at Abigail's actions, I can't help but see Jesus. It, it, I, that's who I see. You see, her attitudes were that of Jesus. And this is how. 
She knew judgment was coming. She knew a massacre was coming. She took action. Jesus also knew that God's wrath was coming. And so he, he came for us. She humbled herself before King David. She takes the blame on herself for Nabal's sin. Jesus humbles himself before us and before God. He takes the blame for our sin. She takes the posture of a servant. Jesus takes the same, Philippians 2, 5, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself. He took our sin. He took our shame on himself so that we might be forgiven, so that we wouldn't have to face that judgment, that massacre. You see, David, when he sees that peace offering, and when he sees that uh, humility, that submission, what happens? He accepts her gift, doesn't he? And he turns his wrath. Listen, that's the same thing that God does. He sees Jesus. He sees Jesus as payment for our sin. The Bible says that, the, that salvation is a gift of God. We can't earn it. And so God sees this gift in Jesus, and he turns his wrath away from us and places it on Jesus. You see that? Abigail is representing the story of Jesus. Nabal's evil. Those people in the world that don't know Christ, that do evil. God is a God of justice, okay? And there will be a time where he brings justice and makes all things right. The last thing I want to say to you before we go. Has somebody done something to you? Are you sitting here this morning in this place holding on to some sort of unforgiveness? Is there some aspect of bitterness in your soul right now as we talk about this? The Holy Spirit may be kind of going, you know? Because listen, when you hold on to that bitterness and that unforgiveness, that anger, that hatred even, it doesn't hurt them, it hurts you. It doesn't keep them up at night, that's you. It doesn't cause stress in their life, that's you. And God is saying we need to forgive. We need to let it go. And we need to remember we can't save ourselves. See, when we hold on to that bitterness and that anger, it's kind of like saying, I got this. I'm going to hang on to this. This is the only thing I've got to hang on to. I'm going to be mad and be angry, but I've got this. It's saying, God, I've got this. I'm in control. I'll save myself. David had to learn that he doesn't save himself. Doesn't save himself. We can't save ourselves. Jesus had a lot of people there at the end of his life as he's, uh, before he went to the cross and on the cross, a lot of people saying, hey, if you're the son of God, save yourself, right? Satan said it at the top of the temple. The thief on the cross next to him said it. The leaders of, of the Jewish faith, if you're God, you're God's son, save yourself. Come down off that cross. And Jesus reminds us sometimes you have to lose to win. Look what he says in Matthew 16, 25. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Some of you are holding on to something that you need to let go of. And it may feel like losing the battle. It may feel like David turning his troops around and they're going, wait, we're not going in to kill it. No, no, no. 
we're going to lose this one. But it's in losing that battle that God brought justice to Nabal. And David received all of his wealth. And it was probably that wealth that helped David become king in Hebron. So friends, can I just remind you this is not our story. Maybe your story is one that's full of difficulty like Belinda has mentioned this morning. But I hope it's not just the first part. I hope that you embrace the second part, which is God is good in spite of the brokenness of my life. And I'm going to give him glory for the brokenness. And I'm going to trust that he's using these things to make me more like him. And God is a God of justice. He will bring justice where there is wrong. And he will exalt me in my humility if I just lose my life for him. The last thing I'll say, Ephesians 4.31, Paul says this to the church at Ephesus. As I say it to you this morning, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ, that in Christ God forgave you. Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And he taught us in Matthew 6, forgive us our debts, right? As we what? Forgive our debtors. The Bible says don't let the sun go down on your anger. So in the immediacy of what that's trying to say in this moment, if God's dealing with your heart about forgiveness, about letting it go, about trusting his justice, can we pray? Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, God, for these stories. Thank you for the story of Abigail, one that teaches us what it means to, to sacrifice, what it means to take a risk, to be brave, what it means to be a peacemaker, what it means to take someone else's sin upon ourselves, Christ, just as you have done for us, what it means to ask for forgiveness, what it means to give forgiveness, what it means to trust that you will care for any need that we have. We don't have to be uh, the ones that get revenge. We can let it go. We can't save ourselves or we can trust that you and you alone are a God of justice. That if we're really going to find our lives, we have to lose it. We have to trust you. We have to get rid of these things in our souls and our lives. We have to even love not just those who've wronged us. We have to love our enemies. We have to love each other, Lord, even as you said in John 13, as you have loved us, sacrificially you're calling us to love one another. Lord, I'm not sure how you're using this story in the lives of our people this morning, but God, I know that you are because your word will not return void. So whoever they identify with today, God, I pray that you would do a work that is substantial and changes them from who they are, maybe it's the prideful person, to who they need to be as David learns and changes his heart, as Abigail models for us in humility today. Whoever it is, Lord, would you give grace to us in this place today as we learn from your word and each other. Make us who you want us to be, God, and help us to forgive as we embrace your forgiveness over us. In Jesus' name.